to sing in the past tense. I've learned to trust him. I'm still learning to trust him. And uh, Lord willing, that is your story as well. I know some of you may be uh, not believers or followers of Jesus Christ, and those words all seem foreign. I hope that you'll come to a relationship with Jesus maybe today. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for being here at Southbridge and your worship program. And notice there's a connection card. If you would, fill it out. And uh, I would love to meet you today. Today we're doing what we call Discovering Southbridge. I want to be out in a room. The theater calls it the birthday room. Uh, we're not having a, we could call it a party with one of the pastors. But um, we'll be out in the, I'll be out in the lobby there. We're doing our group expo. So I'm going to talk more about our group, small groups. At the end of the service, we've got small groups for each one of our core values. And you'll receive a booklet that talks about some of that. And uh, we'll get out of here a little bit early this morning. Believe it or not, God's going to do a miracle. Shorten up the message. And uh, I'll be out there, and I'd love to meet you if you're a guest. If today's your first time, come out there and say hi. I'd just like to say hi to you. Thank you for visiting our church and uh, tell you a little bit about the church. And so I'll just pop into that room after the service. And then also, last week was State of the Church Address. I mentioned some things about our building project, uh, what's going on with that. If you've got any questions about that, maybe you're already in a small group and you're connected here at the church, um, there's going to be a tent, a blue tent, out underneath the awning today. There'll be some guys out there. Any questions we, that we have the answers to, um, we would love to share with you. And so if you want to probe deeper on any of that or have any questions about that stuff, um, feel free to go out to the blue tent after the service. Let me pray for us. We're going to continue in our series we started last week in Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to get there, you can go ahead and get there. Matthew chapter 28. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to gather together in your name. Thank you for a place to meet. Thank you for um, being in a spot where we can clearly and unashamedly proclaim your name. Thank you for, I just even think right now at this moment, the soldiers that have died for us, that we can have the freedoms we have in this country. Um, We've got things are changing. And I pray that you would equip us to be ready. I pray that you would help us to be the disciples that make disciples that are committed to you. And I pray that you would uh, weed out any folks that think they're believers that aren't and uh, make that abundantly clear to them before it's too late. And uh, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we open your word, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would uh, delete anything in my mind that uh, isn't from you, uh, that I was planning on saying, and that you'd just speak your truth um, through me today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in the series that we started last week, and the Great Commission is oftentimes what Christians call this passage, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And if you were with us last week, you know it was what we call our State of the Church Address, which is not really a, a business meeting per se, uh, but every year that we do the State of the Church, we always talk about how did God lead us to the point where we're at right now, and then what do we believe that the Lord's leading us to do in the future, realizing that God can change that and do whatever He wants at any moment. But since we're a church that exists to connect people to Jesus Christ so that our lives will be transformed, be changed... What oftentimes happens in those messages, I'd share with you multiple stories of how people had been changed over the past year and how we want to see more of that in the future. And uh, last week, if you were here, you know, I talked about people trusting Christ as their Savior, which we've had multiple people trust Christ as their Savior. I told you about one lady who was on her way to Target and ended up trusting Christ as their Savior. And so the miracle took place that she was on her way to Target and then she leaves with new life. Her sins are forgiven and eternity is transformed and changed. And that's a, that's a miracle. That is amazing. But then the fact that not just that one will be changed, but in a genu- genuine conversion experience, it'll be a ripple effect. She'll tell her spouse, she'll tell her parents, she'll tell her kids, whoever the different people are in her life, it could change an entire family tree. And so God's at work doing that kind of stuff. And it's easy to talk about salvation. And I'm excited about that because you put a stake in the ground. There's kind of a line in the sand and you cross that and it's, it's clear that you take that step of faith. But that's not all we mean when we talk about life change of this church. And so you heard me talk about people, too, that God's continuing to do the good work that he began at the point of salvation. He's continuing to do until he comes back. And so we had some people, the light went off for them, that God could use them, even if they're not uh, fitting in the box of what they thought, that God uses Christians in certain ways. Like there was one woman I shared with you. We were doing our Making the Most of series. We talked about our talents and our time and God using us. And the light went off for her 
that as a dance instructor, God could use her. They were renovating their house, and so she renovated part of the house to have a dance studio, bring kids from the neighborhood in, use as a platform to share Christ, not just with the kids, but with the parents. And God would use her. That's life change. I'm talking about the person that had mental illness that thought that because of their mental illness, God could never use them, but then realized it's actually God that's doing the work, and he likes to use weak vessels because then it demonstrates his grace, it demonstrates his power. And that's life change that that person would realize that. But what I didn't get to share with you, there are stories. I could just tell you stories all day long. Stories of people who've been transformed. There's the guy that he trusted Christ at our church. He's been being discipled and growing at our church. He was in one of our men's small groups, which you'll hear, you'll be able to be in one of those after the service if you're a man uh, and you'd like to be. Um, but he was in one of our men's small groups, and uh, he was in there just reading through some of the materials and going through the study, and one of the sessions was a man and his work, and the light went off for him. He knew already that he's supposed to share his faith. He knew about that. He's heard us talk about evangelism. He's heard us having your one and all that stuff. But it's like the light went off that my workplace is my mission field. Totally transformed the way he viewed his job. That's life change. Had a guy I talked to with underneath the awning, thinking of the men's small groups, uh, last week. Tough guy, special forces kind of guy. And he is weeping as we're talking out underneath the awning. Everyone's left, everything's torn down. He's just sharing with me about a broken relationship he had with one of his adult children and how hard he was on his son growing up and how because of some of that, they just didn't, didn't connect and he knew it was broken. But he didn't know how to fix it. And he was in one of our men's small groups. He talked about a man and his family, specifically a man and his son, and gave him the tools. It was in that time that God gave him the tools to reconcile that relationship. And he was sharing with me how now they talk about all kinds of stuff. He said, my son will call me and ask me, like, what plant should I buy? He's like, what's just a plant? I said, he just wants to talk to his dad. And we were talking about the relationship they had. And then I just said uh, to him, how did you know when it was reconciled? And he said, when he says, I love you, dad, because he never said that. That's life change. And God keeps changing people's lives. I had one woman who emailed me after the service uh, this past week. She'd been attending our church for exactly a year. She had been at our state of the church the year before. And uh, it was the first time she had come to Southbridge. She said she was hesitant to come to Southbridge because she really wanted a small church. And uh, she was, wasn't really going to church anywhere because she was angry and bitter with God because of some circumstances in her life. Her uh, husband, his name is Dave had an illness that required 24-7 care. And it wasn't just that that difficult thing happened. It was uh, with her own issues of control. It was all the unanswered questions that made her angry with God and upset with God. And she said that she had gone to a service uh, in her hometown the week before, and it was kind of God had tilled the soil of her heart. And then she was here, and it worked out that her husband was in the hospital, and so he had good care for the day, and she was able to slip away, and the, the service times worked out. She came to Southbridge, and she wrote me in the email and said, emotionally after the service, it was like, I was emotionally on my knees. God began to soften my heart at that point last year. And then she told me I could share with her some of what she wrote in her email. What ended up happening is that she'd commit to the Lord to be the best wife that she could to her husband as he was in in this failing health. And in the next five months um, of that process, he would pass away. And then she, she shared this with me. I never dreamed a year later I'd be deep into the process of healing from his passing. I find it truly amazing that God drew me close to him after taking my husband home. It gave me feelings of true peace that, that surpasses all understanding very shortly after his passing. Well, God softened my heart after those first two sermons. When David passed is when I truly started building a relationship with my Lord and started learning to trust and listen. That's life change. She went on in her email to mention how God's used multiple people in our church, some to become friends, um, some leaders in our church, some pastors in our church. She talked about how she'd have all these questions after coming for a couple of weeks. She'd have all these questions. She bombarded Pastor Jason, our shepherding pastor. He was so gentle and kind. And the way that he responded and used different people, now he's using some of you to just be a friend, to walk through this grieving process. She's still grieving. That's a big loss. But God's changing our life through it. God's changing lives. 
And I'll say, and I know I'm biased, but this is a special church. God's changing lives. If the fact that you're here today, you are blessed to be able to be at this place where God's at work and doing this. But I was asking myself, and not to be judgmental, but I've been part of other churches. Why doesn't God do this at every church? Because there'll be a lot of other churches that'll open up the Bible this morning. There'll be lots of nice people and lots of buildings. And why doesn't that happen? Last week we talked about, as we started this series, the promise that drives a life-changing church. And it was the promise that drives the Great Commission. And today we're going to talk about the command that drives this church and that drives, I believe, all life-changing churches. And it's the, the one command. There's only one command in the Great Commission. We're going to see it today in Matthew chapter 28. And it's not just that it drives the church. It's that it drives each one of the individual people in the church. See, when Jesus promised, I'll build my church, he wasn't talking about building a building. Jesus was talking about a people that he would bring together that would be the gathered church of Christ. And so you'll sign it. Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be, uh, verses 16 through 20, talking about this command that drives a life-changing church. And this command is in verse 19. We'll read the context. Remember, the context is the whole book of Matthew. So it's the whole life of Jesus Christ. And I shared with you last week that you can't understand the book of Matthew if you don't understand these five verses. And you can't understand the New Testament, you can't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the Scriptures as a whole without understanding these verses. These verses are the mission. This is like the climactic point. You'd think it would be the resurrection of Jesus, but then this, the book doesn't just stop there. He goes on and he gives these words of instruction, basically, finish what I started, is what Jesus is saying. And so you've got the miraculous birth of Jesus, you've got the baptism of Jesus, you've got the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. All this is the context. He lives this perfect, sinless life, the life that we could never live. Then he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of his disciples. He's rejected by the chief priests, the teachers, the elders, the religious leaders. They murder him. It's the worst crime that's ever committed in the history of humanity, and God uses it for the greatest good that's ever happened, your salvation, my salvation. And then Jesus raises from the dead. If you've ever been to an Easter service, you know he is risen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. The point we're at in this passage of Scripture is perhaps about the 10th appearance that he's had over the 40-day time period where he's resurrected and he's appearing to people. It's about the 10th appearance. And this is what it says. Verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and so they obeyed him. They went to the spot. At the very least, they were available. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We talked a lot about that last week, how the context for the Great Commission is a context of worship and doubt, and how oftentimes that's how we come. I don't believe they were doubting in Jesus as much as they were doubting in themselves. And many of us, we come with worship and doubt. And then the promise that we focused on last week. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples. There's the command. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then another promise, a promise of comfort. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so when you look at this passage, there's a lot here. Verses 16 and 17 give us the context of what's happening, the setting of what's taking place. As these disciples have come to where Jesus told them to be, they're worshiping, but they're doubting. And then he gives that promise, the first promise, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Then he gives the command, make disciples. And there's several participles in there that talk about the how of the command, going, baptizing, teaching. We're going to talk about that more next week. We're really going to focus in on the command this week. And then he gives another promise, a promise of comfort, and I'll be with you through the whole process. I'm going to enable you. I've got the authority to command you. Here is the command. Here is the mission. This is what I want you to do. So we focus in on the command today. The command is to make disciples. And so I know a lot of people come to church 
And they have various reasons. And some people, you come, this is your community of faith. I understand that. This is where you're connected, and you're trying to live out this mission. There's other people that come, and they want a, a word from God. They want um, to know, what, is, what does God want me to do with my life? They, what is my purpose? What is my meaning? And I was sharing with my wife this morning. A lot of times people, I had a mentor that shared this with me. A lot of times people, they want a word from God, but they don't want the word of God. So we want God to like magically whisper in our ear what he wants us to do. But he's told us right here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here is your purpose in living. It's to make disciples. Here, here's what I've designed you for. The creator and redeemer of the universe that has all authority in heaven and earth says, make disciples and do it with all the people. Because I've got all the authority of all people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all nations. And so what we're going to talk about today is this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you love making disciples of Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus true genuine disciple of jesus then you love making disciples of jesus you love there's a joy found in actually doing the thing that he designed us to do created for us to do this isn't just a burden this isn't just if you tried really hard you would this is something that comes out of an overflow if the first part is true so we're gonna spend all of our time really today on the first part of that statement if you are a disciple and so the question is are you a disciple which i know is a bad question because it's just a yes or no question and a lot of people will just answer that question, yes, just because you're at church. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Yes, I'm at church. And you'll come up with whatever reason in that. But if I, let me push it a little bit further. If we were to do like an anonymous survey to everybody here today, I bet if I asked the question like this, how do you know that you're a disciple of Jesus? We get answers that are all over the map. We get all kinds of different answers. What would you answer? And you think about that, and I bet you some of the questions, if you were to look at them and sit down and go, how do you know you're a disciple of Jesus? And the things that people would put, you'd go, how does that answer have anything to do with that question? Ever see that with like the presidential debates or the, they ask the presidential candidates questions? They'll ask them a question and then they get the answer and you're like, interesting answer. How does that have anything to do with it? Do you ever listen to the reporter's questions? Like, is it, what do you think about the Iran deal? Well, you know, I was sitting with Susie Q in Biloxi, Mississippi, and she's, you know, her husband works on the oil rig, and it's like, okay, that's interesting. And then, but she has, eats ramen noodles, and she can't pay all the gas money, and so if I'm president, everybody gets free gas. And you're like, all right, free gas. What, that, what, what does that have to do with that nuclear deal? Like, maybe I'm just not smart enough to make the connection here. What, and you look at it, and you think it didn't have anything to do with it. Well, the same is true, I think, a lot of times the way we answer Bible questions, Christian questions. How do you know you're a disciple of Jesus? Some people say, well, I go to Southbridge Fellowship. Okay, that's great. And I hope everybody gets free gas if that guy becomes president. <laughs> but they don't have anything to do with it. If you look at the New Testament, that's not the question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What is the, not what do we experience in the American church. Not what, mo, what would most people say. What does the New Testament teach us? And so if we look just at this passage, we see at least three characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. The first characteristic we see comes from the promise that we looked at last week. Notice the command starts with this hinge word, therefore. Therefore, go, therefore what? Because of the promise we just got last week that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So go. And who's he speaking to? People that are under the authority of Jesus. They showed up at this mountain. They're his disciples. The first characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ is they're under the authority of Jesus Christ. Think about the authority of Jesus. We talked about it last week. I shared with you about the guy that I met, um, Charles Duke, who had walked on the moon, which is awesome. And he shared about how he looked back at the earth. And even as a non-believer at that time, he looked back, and after becoming a believer in Jesus, he, he learned Job chapter 26, verse 7, where it says that the Lord hung it like he hung it on nothing, the earth in place. And he said, that's what it looked like. And, and I was thinking about it this week, and I thought, how cool. Not that I met a guy who saw that, but I can know the one who hung that. Amen. Jesus Christ, he hung that plane in that place. He said, all the authority... Not just here on earth. All the authority in heaven and all the universe and all the galaxies, everything has been created. And on earth has been given to him. 
He's got all the authority. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky is the works of his hands. And all of his creation does, including you. And every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because he has all authority. The Lord doesn't, it's not just a church term. It doesn't just something that you do when you sing a song like a hymn or you read an old version of the Bible. Lord means master. It means he has all authority. Every knee will bow and call Jesus Christ Lord because he has all authority in heaven. So as your knee bowed, have you willingly submitted to Jesus Christ? Because that's what it means to be a disciple. And you go through the book of Matthew. So not even looking at Mark, not looking at John, not looking at Luke. Not that those are bad, but Matthew's the one writing this. So what does Matthew mean when Matthew uses the term disciple? Well, you go through the book of Matthew, and what do you see in the life of Jesus? We did this red letter series um, this summer, for those of you who weren't here, and we were talking about the commandments of Jesus. The very first command he gives in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent means to stop doing what you're doing and to turn. So we're going our own way. We're doing our own thing under our own authority. And we stop and we turn to God and we submit our lives to his authority. Most of us don't like that because we're sinful. So we don't like the idea of someone else being in control. What we don't realize is as long as we continue to go in our own way, there's a way that seems right to man or woman in the end, it leads to death. We do our own thing. We keep looking within for meaning. We keep looking to our job for purpose. We keep looking to other people to bring the satisfaction that can only be found by our creator and redeemer. And when we turn to our creator and redeemer, there's a great joy because now we're actually under the authority, the design and the structure of the one who created us and redeemed us, knows us by name, and as Nick was sure, knows every hair on our head and wants what's best for you. Otherwise, we keep going our own way. He says, repent. And you know what's interesting? Right after that, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then the next thing is he calls his first disciples. He's got Peter and Andrew, two brothers, they're cleaning their fishing nets. Come follow me. Then there's two other guys, James and John. Get his first four disciples, come follow me. And what it is is you stop doing your plan, you stop doing your thing, and you're come according to my plan now. And you see that theme with Jesus. It's a radical abandonment. They drop their nets. They come follow Jesus. A radical abandonment of what you are following, and then you come follow him, which is what happens in the life of every person that genuinely places their faith in Jesus. See, a lot of times when we talk about salvation, we just talk about you to believe the right facts. You believe that Jesus died for your sins because you were a sinner and God's holy. Somebody had to die for your sins. You've got to believe that it was Jesus who died for your sins. He rose from the dead. If you believe that, then you're in. Well, the Bible says that even the demons believe that. So it's not enough to believe facts. You've got to place your faith in Jesus, which means surrender your life under the authority of Jesus. The Bible says it, not just American church. The Bible says it like this, Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. That if you, will, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, said that wrong. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A lot of times we just talk about the last part. If you just believe in your heart, if you just believe, if you just genuine belief in your heart, well, the demons believe, they believe facts. The first part of the verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is master, he has authority. You submit yourself, your knee bows, like that Philippians chapter 2, that you submit yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. So it should be true in the life of every believer, every follower of Jesus. We submitted to the authority of Jesus. And then you see it. So you see it here, these disciples in Matthew chapter 4. What about if you continue to go through Matthew? Well, Matthew tells his own story in Matthew chapter 9. There's a guy who is, he gets dropped down through the, the roof while Jesus is teaching and Jesus forgives his sins. And then he tells the guy to get up and take his mat and walk. And then he goes out in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and he says to Matthew, who's a tax collector. When we talk about tax collectors, we always talk about they're despised. They're hated because they're embezzling money from people. And that's all true. 
But those dudes made a lot of money. And Jesus says to him, get up from your tax booth, come with me. I've got a new way of life for you. Think that was easy? But it was radical abandonment. See, what you don't see happening, not just in Matthew, but throughout the New Testament, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, you don't see God calling people to come follow him and going, you know, I had a plan for your life, but I really like what you're doing. You know what you're doing? I'm just going to kind of bless what you got going on down there. How about you just keep on doing that? But that's what most of us think. That's the Jesus that we formulate, that we create. And that's what we mean when we talk about following him. We follow Jesus a lot of times like we follow people on Twitter. And so you follow somebody on Twitter, at least this is what I do, or Instagram or whatever social media, and you follow them and you're like, well, I'll take the stuff I like from you and the things I don't like, I just kind of ignore that. That's not what Jesus is talking about in the New Testament when he talks about following him. It's submitting to his authority. Maybe, just maybe, we as the American church have messed this up some. And Jesus really meant what he said in the New Testament. When he said things like Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Whoever wants to save his life must lose his life. You want to find fulfillment? Then here's what you do. Lose your life for me, and then you'll find it. That's a radical abandonment type statement. I was reading a book. You want to go uh, further and talk some of this discipleship talk. I was reading a book this week by Francis Chan called Multiply. And in his book, we, he makes a lot of the same, I makes a lot of the same points in this message he's making in that book. And uh, hopefully both stolen from Jesus. But he says this statement. Talking about that Matthew chapter 4 passage about following Jesus. He says, yes, somehow many have come to believe that a person can be a Christian without being like Christ, a follower who doesn't follow. And one of the things I like about um, reading Chan is he's always so logical. He says this, how does that even make sense? How could you say you're a follower? You don't follow him. He says, many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. So we take his name, call ourselves Christians, but we're not like Christ. And then he goes on in his book and he starts talking about that Matthew 4 passage. He says, what if it had been that Jesus walked up to these guys who were washing their fishing nets and he said to them, Hey guys, I want you to identify with me and say that you believe things about me, but you don't, you don't have to change it all. You just keep doing what you're doing. That wouldn't make any sense. But that's how we live. So the question for us is, are we under the authority of Jesus Christ? Because not everybody that he called to follow him did that. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, see, we also think that Jesus would be so accommodating, so gentle, and he would never confront he's calling disciples in Matthew chapter 8, and there's one guy who says, uh, he's called a disciple, he says, Jesus told him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Because he said, uh, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but first I'm going to go bury my dad. He says, no, you, you come follow me. You're under my authority. You let the dead take care of the dead. The spiritually dead. Deal with the physically dead. I've got a plan for your life. My plan's different than your plan, so you've got to submit to my plan. Got another guy, Matthew chapter 19. Call him the rich young ruler. Comes to Jesus. He is prime candidate to be a you know, life change story for a state of the church address. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus knows what his real authority is. It's the same authority that most Americans have. It's money. And that's what they're pursuing. That's what they're under the authority of. That's what they're going after. That's what rules their life. That's what's ultimate. And so Jesus says to this guy, instead of, oh, just call me, Lord. Say you follow me. Just identify with me. Just believe the right facts. He says, go sell all your possessions. Then come follow me. You've got to ditch the other authority, is what he's saying to him. So that I can be the authority in your life. The guy leaves sad. Here's the question. Why is he sad? He's still got all of his money. But he doesn't have Jesus. He's not a disciple. What about you? 
Are you under the authority of Christ? Not just under the authority of Christ, but we exemplify Christ. The word disciple here, very basically, if you just take it, rip it out of the context and just have it blank in a dictionary, to disciple means to be a learner. And you'll see people, even in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, if you want to read on your own, uh, that are learners of Jesus. They're coming around, he's feeding them, he li- they like the free meals, and they like to learn information. But as soon as he says something they don't like, they leave. So many disciples left when Jesus calls for an all-out commitment, that everything kind of commitment. In the context here, with the men that he's speaking to, who are submitted to him, and then do exemplify his life, he's talking about people who are learning for the sake of living like the one they're learning from. Just exemplify Jesus. We're talking about making disciples. We're really talking about making replicas, making duplicates, like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we duplicate what we are. Not what we want to be. We duplicate what we are. Now, if you're a parent, you probably know this. I don't have to do a lot of teaching to you in this. You ever look at your kids and think to yourself, wow, that is like looking in the mirror. And not just physically. I was thinking about one of my daughters this week, a nine-year-old daughter. She drives me nuts sometimes with myself. Because we, we have some similarities, physically looking similar, but there's some personality things. She's the nine-year-old version of me, but here's the weird, really weird thing that happens in our house. She does things as a nine-year-old, not like I did when I was a nine-year-old, but things I didn't even learn about myself until I was in my 30s. Okay, So she'll be doing stuff, and I'll be so upset, annoyed at myself while I'm talking to her. And so I'll think, like, if you just stop being so intense, like you're so intense about things, if you just relax, then, I'll, then you would enjoy life more. And then I'm being intense about her intensity. And I don't know if she learned that or if it's genetic or what happens, but I know this, I reproduce what I am. And that's what we do. And that's what we're called to do. The question is, are we reproducing Christ? Because that's ultimately what we're supposed to be doing. So when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, he's in essence saying this, all this stuff that looks like Jesus in my life, do that. Other stuff, I'm still a work in progress. God's not done doing the work with me either because he hasn't come back yet and I haven't died. So forget the extra stuff. But then the question for us as disciples who are trying to make disciples is there stuff in my life that looks like Jesus that people should be replicating? Do we look like the one that we say that we follow? As you look at the guys in this passage, these 11 men that have come to this hill to get this commission that we've seen so far throughout the Gospels that have been called dumb, dull. I'm sorry, sometimes in the English it means stupid, you idiots, you moron. Jesus calls these guys this. Why are you such a moron? You have little faith. Why do you doubt guys that deny Jesus before a, a little girl in the high priest courtyard? That after they received the power we talked about last week, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, so he's able to enable us to fulfill this command and to tell us the command, and we should obey it. After they receive that, remember, wait, Luke chapter 24, just wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And as believers, when we bow our knee to Jesus Christ at the point of salvation, we receive that Holy Spirit. These guys are transformed guys in the book of Acts. And you see them making disciples to the book of Acts, so much so that when you get to Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, it says this about these guys. Remember who these guys are. Fishermen, tax collectors, attorneys. Attorneys! Man, a lot of attorneys in our church. Prostitutes. It's a ragtag bunch of people. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. These men who've turned the world upside down. Same people. that in the Gospels, basically wearing dunce caps walking around. Have now turned the world upside down. Why? Because now they're living like Jesus. Two of those guys, two of the guys that are here on this mountain, back in Acts chapter 4, it's talked about them. Peter, who denied Jesus. And John, perhaps the most, the, uh, the most feeling-oriented of the disciples that we can tell in his writings. We read the Gospel of John, the most sensitive are being bold and courageous in Acts chapter 4. 
They're preaching the gospel. They get arrested by the most powerful men on earth. They stand before them. The men threaten their lives. If you continue to speak in the name of Jesus Christ, they end up saying, well, you just, who do you think is better to obey you and your authority or God who has all authority in heaven and on earth? And then those guys that are the most powerful men on the world, in the world at that time, say this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, it's almost like God picked them so that it wouldn't be because of their talents. It wouldn't be because of their intellect. It wouldn't be because of their position. It would be because he was going to make his power known. So that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. They took note. These men had been with Jesus. These are not followers of Jesus that are taking note that the men that they're with, it's like they can sense they've been with Jesus. I remember one time I was in a, small, a Southbridge small group, and uh, one of the women in the group, her dad had come, and he shared this verse. This verse is uh, really important to him. And he shared with us and, and then challenged us with, when people are with you, uh, can they notice that you've been with Jesus? And so now whenever I read this verse, it's different for me. Every time I read this verse, I think, do people, when I'm with people, do they sense from the way that I speak, the way that I think, the way that the truth that I share, the gentleness in my spirit, the willingness to be courageous, do they think, well, that guy's been with Jesus? Do they think that about you? Because you know what was said about the early Christians? They were called the little Christs. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to be under the authority of Jesus. And then people look at your life and they see Jesus, that you exemplify Jesus Christ, that we're learners for the sake of living life the same way that he lived it. And that's what you see with Peter and with John. And you can continue to go beyond the New Testament. You see some in church history. You see these people, they, they had the courage of Christ. Polycarp, uh, he's a church father and something like a weird name to us now. Probably not too many of you named your kids Polycarp, but he was a church father. And uh, he was the bishop at Smyrna. Um, just outside of the Bible time, just up, just beyond that. Um, you can read about that church in the book of Revelation, but he, he was a bishop at Smyrna and um, proclaimed Jesus Christ his whole life. He's famous for having said the statement at his martyrdom. 86 years I've served my king. I'm not going to deny him now. But what happened in his story is that Caesar had made him an enemy of the state. 86-year-old pastor, like how, how enemy of the state, whatever. They send him out to go get this guy. The Ro- Can you imagine like 20-something Roman soldiers? And I mean age 20-something. Roman soldiers chasing down an 86-year-old dude. They try to do it for a few days. They haven't eaten anything. They're tracking this guy down. They find him in a, in a, on a state house on the backside of an estate, like a guest house. And uh, they barge through the door. Can you imagine if you're one of those soldiers? They don't have the internet. There's no like um, America's Most Wanted show. They've not seen this guy. You bust in, you've been chasing this guy down, and then you're like, 86-year-old guy, that's what we've been chasing? And then the way the story goes is that Polycarp then said, oh, you found me. You guys are probably hungry and fed them a meal. <laughs> I've got the gift of hospitality. You should be an elder. And then what happened at his martyrdom is they brought him before a Roman amphitheater and all the Roman citizens were there. And they brought the Christians up to stand behind him. And so you have to picture this. And they bring him up and the commandment was for him to turn to the Christians and say, away with the atheists. Because the ironic thing was, at that time, that they believed that Christians were atheists because they denied the gods of Rome. And they wouldn't partake in emperor worship. So they didn't fall prey to the idols of their day. And what Polycarp did is he stood before this huge amphitheater. And it was time for him to recant his faith and tell the Christians to leave. Instead, he looked at the Roman amphitheater and he swept his hand over the whole thing and he said, away with the atheists. Because they hadn't bowed their knee to the authority of Jesus Christ. Then they killed him. It was courage, the courage of Christ. Polycarp was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus, what he passed on wasn't, be more like me. What he passed on was, be like what you see in me that's like Christ, because I want my life to exemplify Christ. 
Is it the question for us today? Does your life exemplify Christ? And we can talk about a lot of great things about the life of Christ, his teaching, his ministry, his compassion, all that stuff. But then ultimately, what was his life about? Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us why he was sent. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And so what did he do? He sacrificed for that which has lost you and me. And so the simple question for us is, do you sacrifice in your life for the sake of lost people, those of you who are found? What's sacrifice for us in the American church? That's a silly concept. I mean, most of us, we don't even give basic general giving that's obedient giving. We don't even do that, statistics tell us. So the idea of financial sacrifice, sometimes for people we've never even met, or sacrificing our talents, or sacrificing our time, that would exemplify Christ. Because you know what Jesus then says to his disciples? John chapter 20, verse 21, just as the Father sent me, remember why he was sent? To seek and save that which was lost. How did he do that? Well, he left heaven, perfect place, no crying, no pain, no disease. He comes to this place where there's disease and there's death and there's sin and there's depression and there's wars and there's all kinds of problems. That's sacrifice. And then he dies a death that he didn't deserve to die. He wasn't a criminal. He committed no crimes. That's sacrifice. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many, to pay for your sins, to pay for my sins. That was the sacrifice. And then we're supposed to be like Christ, so then do we sacrifice for the sake of lost people? That's how we know. You can't say that you don't sacrifice for the sake of lost people and that you are like Christ. And most of us won't be given the opportunity to die as a martyr, but we're given the opportunity every day to live as an example of Jesus Christ. So do we do that? Third characteristic, we don't have time to really dive into. We'll talk about it more next week, but it's that we're baptized. That's symbolic. It's rich in symbolism and meaning, and it shows that we're under the authority of Christ. We're under the authority of Christ. We're examples of Jesus' life. Jesus was baptized, and we're baptized. That's what we see right from this passage of a disciple. And we'll talk more next week about how to do that, but why, do we, why would we love doing that? It sounds like hard work. Why would we love doing it? It's because of what we were created to do. Really simply what it means to make disciples is this, is to tell the good news of Jesus and then to demonstrate with our lives and through our words what it is to follow him as much as we know at that point in our lives. So you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to come to some class I'll teach that's 13 weeks long about discipleship. You don't have to read Francis Chan's book or anybody else's book on discipleship. If you're, a follow, if you're under the authority of Jesus, you're exemplifying Jesus in your life and you've been baptized, then guess what? It is natural for you then to make disciples. Sometimes people do it and they don't even know they're doing it. Because discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is living out the Christian life. And so we love doing it because it's the very thing we were designed to do by our creator and our redeemer of telling the good news of Jesus that transformed us. We always talk about things we love. And there's all kinds of examples of that in our lives. And then people just see Jesus in us that makes them more like Jesus. So sometimes people will come to you for things. You don't, they don't say, hey, will you disciple me? But they want things that you have that are like Christ. And so you give them that and that's discipleship. And sometimes you've done it, and you probably don't even realize you've been discipled, and it happens. A way that you can do it is through our small group ministry, which we do as a church. It's a way. It's not the way, but the reason why I say it's a way is because it's a way that we put you in life-on-life relationships with other people where you're talking about spiritual things, where you're being intentional about a relationship with Christ. And so it's a natural spot where it can happen for many people. Today is what we call our group expo which is an exposure opportunity to all the different kind of groups we offer. So when you leave the service today, you're going to receive a little booklet. It looks like this. And in it, it's going to have a list of the different types of groups we offer. We do three different types of groups based on our three different values as a church. Encounter, embrace, and engage. Encounter groups are really equipping groups for us. They're places where we want to encounter the living God where we'll be transformed. If, you're going to, if I were going to put it in language for today's passage, it's a place where you are being discipled, where you become a better disciple yourself. And so oftentimes these are 
uh, Bible studies, uh, book studies. Sometimes there'll be prayer groups, places where we encounter the Lord. And so we've got a, a special prayer group that's starting. It's going to be in the uh, midweek during the day, a women's prayer group. We've got some men's groups, and you'll see those in this little booklet, the men's and the women's groups that are happening. Embrace groups are um, a lot of times what you've experienced, a traditional small group in a church. Um, we talk about embracing the one another's of scripture. This is the place where you love one another, carry each other's burdens, confront sin with one another, confess sin to one another, sharpen one another, um, meet together. And uh, for us, that's a time where we uh, spend time like you'd take today's message and not be able to just leave and go, oh, that was a good message. I'm glad I got done quicker or whatever. So do you do that? Have you ever done it? Have you ever been discipled? Do you have a person that you're trying to disciple? And so you, have you been intentional about these things? And so you talk about, do we actually do this stuff? Is part of the point of those groups. Then we've got our engaged groups. Our engaged groups are intentional about um, reaching people, engaging our world for Christ, reaching people for Christ. And so oftentimes they'll be service-oriented or project-oriented or some type of mission-oriented uh, for the sake of trying to reach people that are outside the kingdom, that are lost, that need to be found. And so you'll go through this book, and it'll share different things. It's hard to tell by just reading a book um, who's there and what it's kind of like and what the people are like. So that's why I want you to meet the actual people that are leading those things at these different tables. And so you have your encounter groups, the, men, the women's one. I'm sure the women's ones are amazing. I've never been to one. Process that for a second. It was actually a joke. Men's groups, the men's ones happening over there. I mentioned some of those at the beginning of this message. You've got different names here. So they're just like names on pages, and then there's dates and times they meet. You can try to tell things about people. Like I see the Castillo groups, their, their email address is Wolfpack for Life. Probably should say on there, Tar Heels are welcome. Well, I don't know if they are, but you can go ask them. Um, out there, the Cullen group, the Cullen's one right out. The Castillos are right here in the front. They said Tar Heels can come. We'll work out that. See, they're, the dividing walls in Ephesians 2, they're all falling down now. The gospel's making it happen. We've got the Sprouse group. They're offering child care, and they meet here in Briar Creek. So if you've got kids, they're here in Briar Creek. The Nance group, I know they're Wolfpack fans as well. So we've got, we got to get some more UNC fans leading some groups here. At any rate, I'm just going through the book. Uh, Engage group uh, here. You've got Southbridge Serves coming up. Some of you might not realize what we do with Southbridge Serves. Southbridge Serves, we're going to do October 10th and 11th. We try to serve our community, Briar Creek Elementary School, Fire Department, different places that are around here. And really the point of that is not just that day of service, but then we'd launch some more Engage groups, and there'd be some relationships that continue on. We try and win some of those people to Jesus, connecting people to Jesus for life change. And so if you're interested in one of those mission project type orient, oriented things, you can do that. And then also our Celebrate Recovery ministry. You hear life change stories about Celebrate Recovery all the time. Um, I had a guy that emailed. He told me I could share a story anytime. 21-year sexual addiction. Name's Tom. And uh, said he went to Celebrate Recovery, and it was the most welcoming, loving, forgiving, and truth-telling group of folks you've ever been around before. So you got Hurts, Habits, and Hangouts. So you go to their table. That's a way. That's a way you can make some disciples because really the question, the statement I made last week was this, the Great Commission requires a great commitment. And so you hear this message today, I just want to ask you this question. How as a result of hearing this passage of Scripture, hearing this taught, knowing it's why, that we're, why we're here, knowing it's how God's going to use not only us as a church to be a life-changing church, but you as an individual to make a difference that lasts for eternity, how are you going to be more intentional about making disciples? That's an opportunity for you to apply this message. But you have to answer the question. How are you going to be more intentional about making disciples? Let's pray. Father, thank you for those that are here that have bowed their knee to your son, Jesus Christ, and his authority. If there's any who have not, I pray that today that would be the day of salvation for them, that they would trust your son, Jesus. They would confess with their mouth that your son, Jesus, is Lord. They would believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and that you would save them. And I pray for those of us who have things in our lives that don't look like your son Jesus, but we're followers of yours, that you'd start peeling those away, that we'd repent, we'd turn from those things and turn to your way and be under your plan. I pray for anybody that's not connected in a group, not connected in our church, that you get them connected today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
just remind you too, as you're on your way out, I'm going to be out in the, the glass room out there, the birthday room. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. If you've got questions about the building, you're already in groups, the blue tent, and then otherwise you'll see all those tables out there and then the small groups. And don't go pick up your kids yet. For those of you who have kids, because their teachers are teaching a lesson that God's laid on their heart, give them at least 15 more minutes. So don't pick them up until 1145.